Guy here with a quick message before we get on with the pod. As a thank you to our most dedicated and loyal viewers and listeners to Blood Red, we're inviting you to join our Blood Red Club. By joining, you'll get access to insider transfer content as well as interviews with former favourites and those connected at Anfield. All you need to do is head to bloodredpodcast.co.uk, enter your email address and our exclusive content will head to your inbox. That's bloodredpodcast.co.uk. Thanks. Now on with the show. This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined as always by David Hughes, Dave Austings. Yeah, very good. Thank you, mate. Very good indeed. How does it feel to have your country in a European Championship final, mate? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I throw it back to you, but very, very bizarre. Felt like a quite a, a big occasion last night. Obviously, we're recording the next day, but something that's never been experienced, and probably for most people listening, uh, they haven't seen England in a in a major final. So, yeah, big occasion. Yeah, definitely a strange one. I I wasn't really sure how to react, um, because it's so so fresh, so new, um. And with that being the case, you know, we appreciate that this is analysing our fields and stuff, but the club side, we have we have been saying every week, the club side is really, really quiet at the minute and everybody in the day is talking about the Euros. We appreciate that we have listeners in the likes of Australia and Ireland and places like this, but everyone's talking about the Euros. So um, we can't not, especially given that England are now in the final of the, of the competition. So we're going to run over Denmark a little bit. We're going to preview the final against Italy and we're going to speak a little bit around just tournament bits in general, really. But in terms of the Denmark game, Dave, uh, I thought it was another pretty strong England performance, personally. Yeah, it was right up there in terms of the performances I've seen from England. I mean, they've produced... But they produced good performances, really, across the knockout phase. There was good stuff in the group stage, obviously, but... Certainly since we've hit the knockout phase, I think England have been, well, pretty impressive. And Denmark was a, a tricky game. I thought, you know, the kind of dark horses before uh, the competition started. Obviously, I, they had the kind of tragic thing with Ericsson, uh, which can sometimes feed into narratives and, you know, provide extra motivation. And, yeah, beyond all that, from football teams alone, a good side, a good technical side with some good plays that we spoke about pre-tournaments, you know, plays to watch. So, you know, all that together makes for a difficult opponent. But if you look at the, I mean, we can talk about the penalty if, you, if we need to, but, it, you know, either side of that in terms of the game panned out, I thought England were more than deserved winners. No, I agree. I think, you know, going into the going into the match for me, Denmark were very much dark horses. The way they were playing they weren't getting through as a result of fortune or luck or anything like that. Their performances were really good. I, I described them recently as uh, looking a bit like a club side, to be honest. Um, but if you look at how England dealt with them, it was just really, really impressive. I know that Denmark took the lead and stuff and it was a bit tight and England eventually needed the penalty to get through and things. But if you look at the, the numbers behind Denmark's tournament, for example, they've been one of the best sides, really, specifically in attack. 
you know, in the first game of the season, first game of the tournament, they faced Finland, 21 shots. Then he faced Belgium, 21 shots. Faced Russia, 16 shots. Wales, 16 shots. Czech Republic, 11 shots. And then when it comes to England, despite the fact that the match lasted 120 minutes, England restricted them to just six. So, again, it comes back to the approach, I suppose, that Southgate's kind of instilled. You know, it is quite conservative. It is focused on rather than getting the best out of your strengths. It is kind of making sure your weaknesses are masked. And Denmark, again, similar to Germany and similar to some other teams that England have faced in the tournament, just found it difficult really to get going and to, to generate much, if anything, of value on the attacking side of the game. Yeah, they seem to be very much um, forced to defend a lot more than I think they would like to. Thought they had a little spell when they scored where they, where they played some good football and they were managing to get a little bit of um, dominance in England's territory, but that was fleeting. And on the whole, you know, um, they were, a lot of play was played within their half. They were forced to defend a lot. Um, and I thought England managed their brief or very few counters really well. Um, you know, it, 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 they seem to struggle to get out quickly in numbers without being nullified uh, by, by the way England set up. And what it created was this kind of almost wave after wave of attacks. And I think it, it got to that stage where it mentally broke Denmark down. Um, from a psychological point of view. And it's something that, you know, going back to this show and, and Liverpool, something that we've seen so many times with Liverpool, you know, when they come up against opponents, you know, they, they force them to defend, keep them in, in their own half and, and create this dominance on the pitch where it's hard for them to get out. Uh, the counter-attacks are few and far between and when they, when they do come, they're normally well-managed towards uh, England's defenders and midfielders defended them really well um, and it, it mentally breaks teams down and you could see Denmark they were they were playing for extra time within the 90 and then in the extra time before the goal you know they were hoping to just make it to penalties well I think you know one, one thing on that is I think one thing that's really been underestimated throughout the tournament when it comes to England certainly is the, the squad Southgate has he's just got the, the right player, the right tool for for every match scenario, basically. Whereas if you look at Denmark, I think specifically when it gets to these stages of tournaments, they didn't really have the depth, I thought. And when they started making a few changes, you know, bringing fresh legs onto the field, they were unable to, to retain the same threat and stuff. Like I, I saw this morning, uh, they actually had zero shots after the 60th minute. So, you know, that's half the game. They spent 50% of the game without having a single shot. And that was around the time that Damsgaard left the field, Dolberg left the field. Um, and I think, you know, they brought on Yusuf Poulsen, who's a decent player, and, you know, Christian Norgaard and stuff like that, come on. But when England on the opposite side are needing a goal and they can bring on Jack Grealish and they can bring on Phil Foden, it's it is ridiculous when you look at it and you and England have got those tools at their disposal and I thought Southgate has used those tools really really well. Like obviously, Grealish's um, substitution after being already used as a sub received a bit of criticism and stuff, 
But if you just look at the way he's been used tactically, Grealish, he's kind of only been used throughout the tournaments when England need a goal. Um, so he's kind of been Southgate's key to the door, essentially. And then as soon as England get the goal last night, specifically, you know, um, he brings on Trippier, goes to a back five to soak the pressure. And Grealish comes off because Grealish's job is essentially done. I think in the first game of the tournament against Croatia, it substitutes with the likes of Marcus Rashford, you know, because we, we, we had a goal on Croatia, we had a, we were to go up and we could then start basically counter-attacking. So it, it, it comes back to that kind of tournament football type thing and managing almost purely on the game state. You know, whatever the game state is, you manage accordingly. And I think some teams, I think probably Liverpool took this box, always behave the same, almost. Whereas some managers, you know, Benitez comes to mind, I mentioned last week, Ancelotti's another one. Southgate seems to be, at least when it comes to England, just adjusting constantly based on whatever the match scenario is. Mm, yeah. And game management was key yesterday. I mean, if you wanted to try and get a visualisation almost, you know, that captured in a nutshell, um, I think it was, uh, I mean, there'll be a few around at this point, but the first I saw last night was off to releasing like the um, timing chart uh, of the, the XG accumulated and, and, you know, it's something that we we reference, you know, we'll use the likes of Understat when we're looking at the pool games. And if anyone has a chance to go and look at that, I think um, I think Duncan Alexander, um, at Oily Sailor, terrible app, by the way, but, yeah, you'd be able to see it there on Twitter. Um, yeah, it's you, you'll, get, you'll get a picture of it, you know, beyond, beyond that, the goal, which in itself, you know, a really... I thought that Mark were really impressive when he did from a set-piece point of view. Um, I referenced it last night, saw you reference something earlier as well. But beyond that free kick, which is a, is a shot from distance, you know, it's the kind of thing that you know it's got risk, but you'll also, you'd like to think you can cope with them. Beyond that, they just didn't really create anything of note. And if you look at England, it's uh, it's, it's really healthy in terms of what they do and, and it's captured within the time chart. Uh, I think Opta ended up finishing 2.82 XG for England to Denmark's 0.25. You might see variations of that elsewhere, but if you if you were just looking at that and looking at that in isolation, you say that was a well well deserved dominant win. You know, could have been maybe three nil on, on a different day. Yeah, and that's that's why I don't really think it's necessary really to talk about the penalty because in, in situations like that, I am inclined to look at the full, you know, 120 minute spell. And essentially, you know, who deserves to win? And in my opinion, it was England. Although Denmark performed really, really well towards the tournament, and I do think they had spells early on where they were causing a few problems. I think England were just a better side. England just grinded them down. And I will say as well, when England conceded first, that was a test that, you know, England have conceded first in the past in big, big moments, specifically Iceland. Um, and it was an opportunity there for, for basically the country to lose its bottle. And I, did, I thought that, you know, home fans are, should generally benefit England. But I thought in that situation with England conceding first, I thought that could potentially go against the team. But the way England just kind of kept playing, you know, no long shots, no madness, just still an hour left in the game and he got a goal back fairly soon. I thought that was quite a, just different to what we might have seen from England sides in the past. 
Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. You mentioned set pieces there, Dave. I think you know it was one of them games, really, wasn't it? Both teams showing a clear interest in it. Um, the moment that I flagged on Twitter this morning was, uh, yeah, it was. I think it was Denmark's first free kick. It was kind of on the edge of the final third, a little bit close to the flank, and uh, the way Denmark set up, it was just kind of like a big ball of players. I think Lee Dixon on comments, he said you could throw a coat over them. Um, they, were, they, they were that close together. And then once the ball got gets approached by the taker, uh, everyone's in different directions. You know, I think two players attack the near post, two players attack the back post, and maybe one run, run through the centre. And as a result of that confusion, Lou Shaw commits a foul. Um, and then, obviously, Damsgaard scores from the resulting free kick. And I initially thought Pickford was a false. You know, we, we praised Pickford last week. Um, but your tweet, Dave, actually, when you quote tweeted what, what Denmark did, that was the first I saw on my timeline. So, you know, that was the um, the first time I saw that Denmark had, had included like a, a sort of little ploy there to um, to gain an edge. Yeah, yeah, it was really clever. If, if anyone hasn't seen it, um, they basically <laughs> almost alongside the England wall, they have a, a three-man Denmark wall as well. Um, but as the free kicks due to be taken by Damsgaard, they take about maybe, I don't know, a two-yard step to the right, to the right which blocks Pickford's, uh, Pickford's vision. And, it, and then I think they reopen the gap again I can't remember the specifics off the top of my head, but if you watched it back now, you'd see it really clearly. And what it does is it just blocks his vision uh, up until the point hit of the ball being hit. And I I agree. I can see what you're saying. I thought the same. When you when you see where the ball lands, and that's what a lot of the pundits were focusing on at half time. If you just look at that, you think, well, it's landed here. The goalkeeper should be able to reach that. But if you think about the fact that them they blocked that um, his sight and then the speed of which the ball was hit because it was hit with some real power and speed. It just makes it pretty. It, it would have been a remarkable save had he made it. And for that reason, I don't think you can then criticise if, 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 if they don't make the save. But yeah, I thought the free kick that you were talking about, Josh, was really good in the build-up. And even the corner. I don't know. Do you, do you recall that corner early on where it was, it was basically every man including the defenders inside the six-yard box around the goalkeeper, um, which maybe isn't brand new, you know, something that it's probably something we have seen before, um, but it just creates a lot of mayhem in there. makes it really difficult for Pickford to get, you know, a clean punch if he's trying to come out. Uh, it makes it difficult to defend. And when you start seeing teams doing stuff like this, you know that they're well-drilled on, a variety of set pieces and in games like this that can obviously obviously be decisive um so beyond the free kick i think england dealt with it really well and on another day they, they you know they could be punished by them yeah it was they were doing the type of things that you, you could have easily conceded from like you know you mentioned the six yard thing there i think they did that with the first corner of the game that they had and i think they did it with another one in extra time as well and as you say it just causes a bit of mayhem and it, it tends to work a bit more effectively when you do it on a keeper who maybe isn't the biggest. Um, I think if you did it to someone like Donnarumma, maybe, 
who I think is about 6'6". Six, six. I think he'd probably cope a bit better. But Pickford generally has, you know, the frame of, of a standard centre-half, really. He's not really particularly imposing, is he? So it can cause issues. Liverpool have done that in the past. Um, specifically, Barcelona, actually at home, when I think we won, when we won 4-0. I recall... Liverpool doing that, basically putting Van Dijk on top of Ter Stegen and, and things like that. And it can just result in, in panic. It can result in a keeper getting poorly sighted and things like that. So, um, thankfully, England didn't get punished from it. And England have profited from those little set-piece quirks throughout this tournament and specifically the World Cup as well. So, it's the kind of thing that, you know, again, going back to the whole tournament football thing, it can just give you, you know, to win a tournament, you have to win. How many games? It's six, six, seven games. You have to win seven I games. Think it's seven, yeah. So, yeah. you know, if, if you've got to win seven games to win a tournament, set pieces can win you two of those comfortably, um, given the whole low score and nature of football. So, I think we'll move on anyway to, to Italy. Um, but yeah, that, I think that general performance against Denmark bodes really well going into the. Um, going into the final. Obviously, both sides, when it comes to Italy and England, played extra time. So, you, you know, you could argue it's going to be tired legs. But when it comes to Italy, Dave, uh, you're feeling confident, you're feeling threatened, worried. What the general, what's the general feeling? So, when this you've had these various conversations with people you know, over the last couple of weeks, you know, talking about how, how, do, how it's panning out the route to the final and you'd want to avoid you know Italy were right up there and when it was between them and Spain they're the team wanted to avoid because I, it, it really goes back to the conversation we we had last week where you know we were, we were trying to break down Southgate as a manager uh, and, I, and I said that whilst I appreciate he is a good tactician you have to be to be a manager at that level and no doubt about it I think he, what what he's done is create a created a really good um, squad environment, and that's been crucial to the success of this England side. You know, if you if you see what they've done under him, I think that's down up to a lot of the kind of man management aspect he's he's had there. I think if you look at Italy, it's it's the it's the same. I think Mancini's been really good in what he's done there. I mean, people forget, you know, this is the same Italy side who. Failed to qualify for the World Cup. You know, they've, they've kind of been disarray. Mancini's come in and he's just completely changed. Uh, I think they've got this, you know, kind of outstanding work ethic and um, they've got this confidence, belief. They've got good leaders in the team. Um, all the, the kind of psychological aspects of the game that's so important. I think they've gotten in abundance. Then you throw in the fact they've got quite a few good individuals as well. Really strong defensive unit, good strong defenders, but also serious players uh, in attack as well. You know, Keisha, uh, Signe, they've got, they've got plenty up there, haven't they, players that can cause you issues. And I think it'll be a tough game. Yeah, one, one thing about what, what Mancini's done, and a few top coaches out there, tend to do it and whenever they do I usually really like it I don't know why it's it's a fairly simple move but I love the way he's just came in and brought Chiellini and Benucci back into the fold Um, you know if you, if you look at maybe what hands he flicked when he took over Bayern Munich from Nico Kovac he just brought Thomas Muller back into the scene if you look at what 
maybe Thomas Tuchel did at Chelsea. He, he straight away he started Aspilicueta, started Jorginho and plays like this, big characters and stuff. Um, and obviously there's no real way of determining the impact of those players, but there's something about a manager taking charge of a new regime, starting afresh, and just starting the players who many have maybe started to consider are over the hill, a pasty, they've had their time sort of thing, and you just kind of give them a new lease of life by saying, listen, you're really important to what we're going to be doing moving forward. And these players, although they might technically be pasty, because they've contributed so much over the course of the careers, they are massive, and it's it's really interesting that Italy's Italy's whole setup really is is founded upon the defensive experience, stability, assurance, whatever you want to call it, of Chiellini and Benucci at the back. Um, to the extent that I think they've conceded like one goal in the past thirty hours. Oh no, it's two now, isn't it? About two goals in the past thirty hours of football or something. And one of those goals, I think it was against. Uh, was it Austria? It was a header from a set piece from a corner, and the header. I don't know how he managed to score the header. Um, it, it only squeezed in. But if you if you look at Italy's whole setup, I I just wanted to focus on how I really like that he's kind of reintegrated the players who are just massive players for the country, but have maybe seen a bit less action over the years. Yeah, it's, look, it's a really good point. And as you were talking, I was just double checking it because I thought. It's more than likely going to be the case. Um, and talk about reintegrating those players. Uh, Italy have got, got in the tournament so far the um, the oldest average age of any side. Uh, now, obviously, these are always difficult, these stats, aren't they? Because some teams have played you know, six games, some only played three or whatever. But uh, Italy got the oldest average age. Who's got the youngest? It's got to be England, hasn't it? Yeah, England, yeah, yeah. So it's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's two polar opposites, which I think is a really interesting narrative. Um, I, actually, I actually thought Belgium might have been the oldest, actually, because I, I've said a few times on the pod. They're right there, thirty. So average age for England thirty point eight, uh, and Belgium thirty one. So it's really tight. Um, yeah. You know those those appearances for like Defoe and stuff. Saka brought it right down. Uh, just give us the edge there, but. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. Uh, I think there's a more of an appreciation within those players as well when they come back into the fold. Um, and yeah, just I know we talk so much about the analytical aspects of football because we because that's what we do. That's what the show is about. But I just think the difference with what maybe we have compared to others who are who talk about that side of the game is they don't seem to always value the psychological aspects. And I just think yeah. you only have to watch an Italy game to realize. How integral it is like I thought Chilini in in terms of uh, the the build up to the, the coin toss for the penalty shootout with Alba. I had a like, you was going to say that. Yeah, for me, I think people initially thought he was just this kind of big jokey character, but for me, I just thought that was man games at its finest. You know, just really kind of, the the punching him in the face and the kind of shaking him, and you know, it's 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 kind of like you know, big brother behaviour, isn't it? You know, to tap on the head stuff. And I just think all that just really plays into it. And then whilst I think they exaggerate it a little bit and it's they go to the extreme, I think, you know, with the when they defend set pieces and, you know, tackle plays for corners and they're all fist pumping and jumping about. So I just think that, although exaggerated, as I said, 
I do think it just feeds into their own narrative that the building of this kind of team spirit and this you know gladiator approach, I guess. I agree. I think the you know one of the ways of putting it you could probably say is the the kind of know how to win, which is a difficult thing to describe what you mean by that really. But um, just even little things like when they had a lead against Spain, you know, the the gamesmanship they were shown. It's not nice to watch, is it? At at the end of the day, but it it it's had a proven way of working over the years when it comes to especially in tournaments and stuff. Um. Even when it comes to certain players being persistently on at the referee, it just gradually, you know, if you get one or two decisions in your favour, it can wear down a refereeing figure and stuff. So, yeah, I think if Italy have definitely got, I think Klopp earlier in the season, taking the back to Liverpool when we were, in fact, it might have been the season before, when we faced Atletico Madrid and we went out and uh, it, it was the last game at Anfield with fans in. Um, Klopp was describing Atletico Madrid around that game as a as a results machine, and I think he was kind of referencing things like that because I think on the performance side, Atletico Madrid were never really a dominant side, but but in terms of securing results, any means necessary, really, they just know what to do almost. Um, and I think Italy are definitely there. Italy have got more. Certainly, international experience at these top tournaments. I think England have got a fair amount of experience now when it comes to big, big games because of the players in the squad. You know, Mason Mount just played the Champions League final. Harry Kane, Harry Kane's played big games. Kyle Walker's won all kinds. So England have got plenty of experience themselves. But when it comes to specifically the game state in this game, going back to Southgate and stuff, and Italy's gamesmanship and all that, the game state's going to be huge. And I think. But, you know, neither team will want to concede first, basically. It goes without saying, really. But it's a big, it's it's probably going to be a big deal in this one. Yeah, especially this game that it's it's huge, isn't it? Because both teams have the capacity to win 1 0, you know, score that goal and just see the game out. You know, the, the, you're looking at the two, two best defences so far in terms of, and when I say defence, I don't just mean the you know, the back four and the keeper, I just mean the structure, you know, how they keep the opposition out of their goal. You're looking at the two best sides in Europe, you know, maybe even, maybe even the world. I mean, I don't watch a lot of other nations. I've watched a bit of Copa America, but, you know, it won't be far off saying right now, both these teams are right up there in terms of keeping the opposition out. Um, and it could be a nightmare if you're having to chase a game. So, it will. That could be decisive in terms of who scores first. Decisive. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Just a little bit on the specifics of Italy, then, um, because I think Southgate seems. Uh, sorry, not sorry. I think Mancini has um, kind of gone about the tournament a bit differently to Southgate. The way we've kind of praised Southgate for being very open to the concept of tournament football game state, um, managing from match to match, which generally we wouldn't really favour in a club 38-game league perspective, but in the tournament we think is fine. I think Italy have generally gone down the club-type route. I think match to match, Mancini clearly, in my opinion, has a, a fixed system that he's quite clearly worked on and selected players to execute when it comes to constructing a squad 
So they kind of have a kind of a lopsided four two three one, really, that rotates once they kind of advance up the field. Um so they've got the general back four, Chiellini and Benucci as the two centre backs, and obviously the left back though Turner was uh, Spinozola, who was probably one of the players at the tournament, to be honest. And you know, as Italy moved up the field, he very much became what looks like a winger, really. And he very much helped Insigne on that side, who's very inclined to cut inside. So Spinozola's overlaps and underlaps was creating space for him. So once Spinozola moved forward and advanced into the final third, Italy's right back would kind of tuck inside and would almost form a bit of a situational back three. Um which again we've seen Liverpool do at times. Um but it seems to be how Italy have played in every game, regardless of kind of who they've been facing. Um and even when Spinozola got injured, they replaced him with uh, Chelsea's Emerson, who's very similar in type. I think he's 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 a full back, but very attacking by nature. So it's it's I think it's different to what England have been doing. Obviously England have adapted at times to to, to use a back three. When it when when situations were right, because Germany have been using it and stuff, I think England used a four three three at one point in the early in this tournament. So two different approaches there, and I think from England's perspective, Southgate should be able to look at Italy and clearly analyze what to expect. Whereas when Italy look at England, England seems to have more of an approach whereby we will change based on you. Um, and, you know, depends whatever you favour there. But looking at that for a one-off game in a final, I think England might have a bit of an edge there. Yeah, I agree, because it's a lot easier to to prepare for, isn't it? Whereas Italy, as you say, don't fully know what is going to happen with England. Because even, uh, even as you said, if there's personnel changes within that Italy setup, the profiles are the same. And it's clear that Mancini like, wants to replace like for like. Uh, so if a player, if a, if one player comes in, another one goes out, it's to perform the same role. So the structure is still the same. If you look at England, it, it isn't like that. You know, Kyle Walker. Say if you're playing a flat back four, Kyle Walker's role won't be the same as Kieran Trippier's. If you play like a three four three, will it? It'll it'll vary. Um, so it's going to be really difficult to predict what what England will do. Uh, and it does. I I think specifically. It, club football week to week, you you probably be better off um, the way Italy are doing it. Uh, I think having that kind of structure, um, you know, almost rehearsing your your, your style week in week out, fine tuning it, etc. But as you said, one off game that that could be the difference. You know, if 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 England start well, Italy spending the first twenty minutes trying to suss out what what they're trying to do. You know what. What movement to lead to which, how they're attacking, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and England score within that time. Well, you know, a couple of minutes ago we just talked about the importance of the first goal, so it could be huge. So I agree. I think having that flexibility could be decisive on Sunday. Yeah, I think you know, given that England will be able to pretty much forecast exactly what Italy are going to do, unless Mancini makes a very late change for the final, which I think would be quite a big call for him to make, considering he's clearly worked on this system to just drop it for the final. Okay, you you then factor in the elements of surprise, which should benefit Italy, I'm sure. 
But then, you know, if that, if that goes wrong, you have serious regrets, I think, because you think, you'd be thinking to yourself, you know, I, I chucked out the system that got us to the final for the sake of the element of surprise and end up going wrong and all that. So I think England will, will definitely benefit from being able to look at Italy and knowing what to expect in a tactical sense. Um, and, you know, even if you look at the players, I think it's it's interesting looking at Italy because I think specifically if you look at where they're weak, I know we've just been praising them when it comes to Chiellini and Benucci, but they're not very quick. You know, they're, they're not they're not fast players then. And I think specifically when it comes to Italy's game against Belgium, I thought that might have been where the game was going to be lost because there was one or two moments where De Bruyne and Lukaku were just running directly at Benucci and Chiellini, who seemed a little bit exposed, I thought. Um, so whether England's speed will do will will cause problems for Italy, specifically Sterling, who's had a great tournament. Um, you know it'll be interesting that one, but it's it, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting one to preview. I can't really see. I I'm not sure who dominates possession because you know I was quite surprised Italy dominated possession against Belgium, but then when it comes to Spain, Spain had all of the ball, so. Italy see, I'm not sure if Italy wanted Spain to have all of the ball or whatever. Um, in the England game against Germany, I expected England to sit off and Germany to have all the ball. It wasn't really the case at all. England were quite front foot. So I think in terms of how the match will play out, certainly at the start when it's nil-nil and stuff, I think it's quite difficult to predict who is going to be the more proactive dominant side and which team is going to be more keen to counter-attack almost. I, uh, I'll be honest, my personal opinion is that I fully expect Italy to to sit in and kind of retreat, remain compact and let England try and break them down. I just think it will go along with that kind of um, mentality that they're probably going to adopt on the day. You know, they're going to be in Wembley. Uh, they're going to be massively outnumbered. Uh, it's going to be like an away game, really, uh, in, in a big final, big occasion. As you said, against Spain, I mean, the numbers will vary from wherever you look at, but I'm looking now and they had under 31% possession by the end of the game. Uh, again, so that's, you know, that's not a lot at all, really. Um, and yeah, I, I can I can fully foresee. And for the reason you just said, you know, England's got a lot of pace up top and I don't think they'd want to risk getting find themselves in kind of 1v1 situations where... Uh, one of England's wide attackers or, you know, kind of comes in and they're running at a slow, not very mobile defence. I think he Mancini's going to prefer to give a bit more protection to the defence uh, and then try and expose England on the counter if he can. It's going to be interesting, and, you know, given that we've just mentioned game state quite, quite a lot and, you know, the importance of whoever scores first and stuff. It's going to be insistent if it goes to penalties. <laughs> you know, we can't not mention it. England haven't yet had to play with penalties. Italy just have against Spain and went through. Um, but it's it's kind of a flip of a coin, really. Although it does depend how much of how much due diligence essentially that you do behind the scenes. Like I, I suppose to guard against the elements of chance. We know that according to expected goals. 76% of penalties on roughly a scored. Whether that's whether that's the case in shootouts, I'd be interested to know actually. Um and we also know that the team that shoots first 
in a penalty shootout usually wins 60% of the time. So I suppose that initial coin flip is a big deal. Um, And I had a little look at the numbers before, Dave, regarding the two keepers. I don't think... It's, it doesn't cover the whole careers, it just covers league. So Serie A and Premier League. When it comes to Donnarumma, he's saved one in every three pens um, in Serie A since his emergence over the past few seasons. Pickford, uh, one in every four pens. But both of those are pretty decent. I mean, I suppose Pickford, in terms of one in every four, I suppose that's roughly on point with the penalty to score 76% of the time thing. But I've seen Pickford deal with penalties and he does look generally, I'd say, better than average. And Donnarumma's record there seems to be better than average. So if it did go to penalties, it could be a case of quite a few saves in there. Yeah, it's uh, I think I think the, the the psychological aspect that comes in from the, the shootouts definitely will have a an impact on that as well. Um, yeah, it's tough. That I mean, just on, you, say, yeah, you, you, you say, yeah, yeah. No team has ever won two penalty shootouts in one Euros tournament, where uh, which I think is a good sign. Uh, well, it does go there. I think that's interesting as well from the, from the perspective of you know we talk a lot about analysis and stuff. Obviously, England w- would have now seen Italy take a pe- take a few pence and a few of the players take a few pens, which side they went, how Donnarumma, be- how Donnarumma behaved. So England would have, again, that kind of edge when it comes to pre-match analysis compared to Italy, who have seen Kane take a penalty and nobody else. Mm. So it's going to be an interesting one. If it, if it does go to that point, you know, God help us all. <laughs> um I don't, I don't, I don't think I want it to go that that way. Like to be honest, it's it's a crew way of winning, crew way of losing. I'd rather it be done in, in normal time. But yeah, I mean, we 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 had to talk about penalties, David. It's, it's international tournaments and it's England. Yeah, yeah, I, I really don't want that. Uh, yeah, it's it, obviously it's 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 nice if you come out on top, but no, I, I'd I'd like to see it done in ninety minutes if possible. With the result going England's way, um, it's it's exciting. No, analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Aside from the match, then just to round up, we're gonna do basics. Um, so first, Dave, I'm gonna ask for your team. What would your team be for this game and your formation? Mm, yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> what I do is I would go, oh, yeah, this is not, uh, okay, I'm, I, I'll go 4 2 three, one. <laughs> Okay, yeah, it's tough, mate. 4 2 three, one. Um, I, I, Same for now, I go same keeper, obviously, same defence. Uh, Sterling on the left. I'd maybe go Sancho on the right for this one, just, just to try and disrupt things a little bit. Um, you know, he's got with his dribbling ability and if those opportunities come where he can run at teams or there is some space to exploit, I think he'd do that well. I'll keep Mason Mount in the 10. I don't think he was phenomenal, to be honest, uh, against Denmark, but I still think he's a great player. But one big one that I feel would be controversial away from this podcast, but maybe not talking on this podcast, 
I'd bring Henderson in for Declan Rice. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know whether whether Southgate would do that this stage going into a final, but I just think if you if you think of four two three one, if you envisage basically sitting in more, you know, being a little bit more compact, you're going to need a little bit more penetration from deep. I don't think Rice is that based in doing that. You know, he doesn't have to do it week in week out at West Ham. Who are predominantly defend first type of tactics. Henderson does this all the time for Liverpool. You know, he he has to be that player who he breaks things down and offers a bit of penetration. Uh, I thought he thought he looked really sharp when he come on um, against Denmark, doing some good stuff, making good angles, good underlapping over overlapping runs, and I just think for me he comes in. So for me, I would also go four two three one. And I would actually, it's tricky actually when you think about it, but I, th- I think I would go the same team. I think I'd keep everything the same. My biggest temptation would be to include Henderson, as you say, not because I'm a Liverpool fan, but simply because of how massive the game is. I know Phillips has played well and stuff, and Rice has played well, but Henderson has done this. Henderson's experienced it. Henderson's played Champions League finals more than one. He's um he's played in England's last semi-final, I think, in the World Cup against Croatia when we lost. He's won Premier Leagues. And I think, you know, in, in matches like this, you, you just never know how certain players are going to react to the to the occasion, basically. And I, I don't really doubt that Phillips and Rice will just not turn up or something like that. But I just think when it comes to the, his presence, his his leadership and all that, so all those intangibles alongside the fact he can move the ball forward and things, and I think he's a bit more got a bit more of an attack and threat than the pair of them. I do think you'd have to consider Henderson. To be honest, um, I'm not I'm not even sure who it would be for if it'd be for Rice or Phillips, because it'd be, and it'd be a really hard call considering they've got the team, they've contributed to getting to the team to the final. So that'd be a big call that one. But in terms of everything else, I would keep everything else the same. Um, because I think, you know, we've touched on Italy's relatively slow centre-back pairing. So I'd keep Sand- I'd keep Sterling, and I think I'm pretty sure I'd keep Saka, because he's left-footed, cut- cutting inside, going towards the likes of Benucci and Cialini, and he's quick and can carry the ball and stuff. And I think on that side, that's where Emerson plays. Um, and Emerson, as we've touched on, will be an attacking outlet for Italy. And Saka's obviously got experience playing as a wing back and stuff, playing as a full back and things. I think he's a bit, maybe a bit better defensively than Sancho, um, and Grealish. And I think in terms of Grealish, obviously there's lots of clamour to, uh, to to play Grealish, but I I wouldn't start Grealish. I think Sterling play Sterling has to play, and he has to play in his usual slot. And in my opinion, that's where Grealish would play. And then it's either Grealish and Mount for the number ten spot. And I think I'd go with Mount in this game. Just, again, off the ball, I think he's better in terms of defensive work and stuff. And I think I'd just use Grealish again as that key to the door if we need him. I think he's perfect for that. Hmm. So that's kind of how I'd do it. Um, but, you know, the England, Rashford, I think, is an option for this one where, where Saka's playing. But I do think Rashford plays a little bit worse when he's on that right side. I think he prefers where Sterling's playing, basically. Uh, 
but it's 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 a tough one actually. It's just, it'd be interesting to see where he goes with, but I don't think he'll change much at all. Um, and then around this, Dave, your player of the tournament. Um, yeah, look, it might seem lazy, but it's the truth. I think uh, I think for me, Raheem Sterling definitely. You know, I think there's a few there's a few different players we could talk about, but beyond his goal contributions, he's just played really well. You know, he's played really well in, the, in a team that's gone all the way to the final, irrespective of what happens at that final. He's been, you know, t- really, really difficult to defend against. Um, even yesterday, doesn't doesn't score, but big hand in both goals. You know, he would have scored the first had it weren't put in by, as it wasn't scored an own goal and then creates the penalty. I just think he's been fantastic, Josh. So he's, he's man. Yeah, I would agree. I think Sterling's been outstanding, to be honest. I think he's been so difficult to defend against. He's just so quick. He's lightning quick. I don't I don't I don't just mean running in behind. I mean just his actions on the ball. It sometimes he'll have taken three or four touches before his opponent even realizes he's moved. Like he, he his touches are so rapid that he's just incredibly difficult to defend against. And because of what he's like He's generally a problem in penalty boxes. Can win, can win penalties and stuff like that, which is again massive in these low-scoring tournament games. We, we obviously saw that last night, rightly or wrongly. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think he's scored most of England's goal. I think he scored three of England's goals, is it something like that? Maybe four. And I think virtually all of the goals he's played a key part in. You know, the opening goal against Ukraine, he assisted. He, the, the opening goal against Denmark yesterday, he would have put in the net if. If Simon Kier didn't score an on goal, so and he played the full one hundred and twenty minutes and was still darting round after two hours. So I think he's been outstanding. He's been at a brilliant tournament. So when it comes to your alternative player of the tournament, Dave, so bit of a you know this is your opportunity to be a hipster. This is your opportunity to give us a bit of a wild card alternative shout to be going with. Yeah, I can't miss this. Uh... This open goal for me here. Uh, look, there's, there's a few <laughs> names could have said could have said Pinzola, Danny Almo I thinks really stepped up. You know, another player that we talked about in the past. Obviously, look up for Spain, but obviously, Josh, I'm going to say Damsgaard. You know, talk talked him up pre-tournament, and uh, I think he's played really well when he's come into the side uh, beyond scoring. I think he scored two goals, one of which was that beauty against England, but. You have to. You probably agree, Josh. He's, he's just looked really sharp, hasn't he? Uh, you know, really good technical player, working well in between the lines, and a big problem for defenses. Uh, so he's definitely one I'm. Uh, I'm pleased to to have seen done well after we spoke about him. Yeah, sticking with that theme, have you got any <laughs> any idea who I'm going to pick by any chance? <laughs> Go on, yeah. Why not? Well, no way. Why? Why? Why would? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, yeah. I've got an. Uh, I've got an open goal myself. I think. Uh, so in terms of Jochen Mail, uh, Denmark's left wing back throughout the tournament, who I flagged before the tournament as a right back because that's where he usually plays at least. But I think him being right footed has actually had a really interesting impact on his left wing back role. He's obviously scored a few, been really really good for Denmark going forward, a bit like Spinazzola in terms of offering an attacking outlet. Um, and yeah, I'm. I'm I'm happy that I flagged him before the tournament as a player to watch because I was aware of him beforehand. He was like, I think it was Genk or Ghent, I get comp- confused with the two of them sometimes. I think it was Genk though. Then he moved to Atlanta in January for about 10 million. 
And uh, I've been aware of him as a a well-rounded, you know, solid fullback. Um, I know he had a tough night last night, but who hasn't against Raheem still yeah. in the past couple of weeks? Um, but I think specifically that, going Josh, forward, he's been a wild card. Yeah, on that as well, someone did point out that carrying a little bit of a knock their game into extra time, and I thought it was a really good point. He did he did struggle last night, but I don't think you're right to play it off on on that alone, do you? He has been really good this tournament. Yeah, so uh, another success there for, for the Analyze and Anfield tips. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll round up there anyway. So yeah, thanks for joining us, Dave. Yeah, thank you, mate. Cheers, everyone. Yeah, and uh, enjoy the final. Hopefully, um, England bring a home. We haven't actually said throughout the whole tournament that it's coming on one Dave, but... Uh, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I think it might. That's all I'm going to say. So, uh, yeah, tune in maybe next week or the week after. I might be away next week, but thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll see you soon. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.